Hello. It is very tempting to attempt to do the entire reading as if I was Moby. Uh, always good to be in this store. Always good to be in Los Angeles. Uh, every time I come to Los Angeles, I'm sort of reminded that, like, you know, the city filled with famous people, and yet even famous people really aren't famous. Today I was had to do a po- had to do this podcast. So uh, they're taking me to the podcast location. So I go out of the hotel and I get into the car. And I close the door. It's got the driver. The guy turns around and he's looking at me and he goes like, oh, "Like hola," and he's like, "You are Fox Vivica." <laughs> I was like, "No, I am not superstar African American actress Vivica Fox." I, I, you know, but it's like he doesn't care. It's like he's like it's on the sheets. You know, my car was behind him. <laughs> it also made me think like Vivica Fox doesn't use that crazy of a car to get around. I mean, it was a pretty basic black car. You know. Um, uh, also, uh, I was informed uh, before I got here that uh, this is being taped for a podcast. Um, you know, which uh, I always think creates an interesting risk-reward for me as the writer, okay? (laughs) The risk, of course, is that I'll say something offensive, accidentally racist, really weird, might fall down, ruin my career, everything I've done for 25 years evaporates into the air, it's all done because someone taped it. The upside is that some kid in Boise might watch 30 seconds of this before, like, looking for a Drake video or something. Like, it'll just be like, he, like, you know, just might just sort of pass by. It's like, it doesn't really seem it's going to generate anything. But, hey, you know, I like to always know when I'm doing something in public, it's kind of like people are holding a gun in my face. <laughs> I feel that really brings out the best in me. Um, okay, so here's what is going to happen. Um, this book is called But What If We're Wrong? Uh, the subtitle is like thinking about the present as if it were the past. The title and the subtitle kind of explain what the book is, okay? If that sounds interesting, maybe you'll like this book. I'm going to read a little bit from it. Not much, just from the beginning, you know? Um, for a couple reasons. Uh, the main one being it's like listening to a dude talk is boring. I know I'm not supposed to say that as someone on a book tour, but it's true, and I say it every time. It's, you're not supposed to listen to the guy pedantically lecture at you. You're supposed to have this, like, reading's supposed to be this kind of interior process where you're, you're taking in the information, and it's like this private thing. You can, like, do it in a nook or whatever, you know? You're not supposed to just have the guy telling you what the book is um, unless you're a small child. And, like, the book is like, go, dog, go. Which is always the example I use, but now that I have kids, it, I've rediscovered the key point in Go Dog Go is the end, where they sort of have a dog party in this tree. So kind of a visual experience anyways. Like, my kid is waiting to get to that port, so you can go like, oh, look, the dog's in a cannon or whatever. Like, he doesn't really need me. I'll do a good job reading that book, I think. But um, Okay, nonetheless, I'm just going to read a little of this book. And um, I'll talk a little in between. And then, you know, uh, we'll probably move quickly into the questions part of it. And I like the questions part of it. And I always tell people this. If you've come to these readings before, I'm probably telling you the exact same thing I've said before. When you come to these things, I know often there's a, f- a sense that like, well, I'm, 
You know, this guy wrote a, wrote a book, and I'm here for it. I've got to ask questions about the book. You absolutely can, but you don't have to. You can ask about anything. I don't care. I mean, people know I'm weird, right? So they think, I'm going to out-weird this dude. Go ahead and try it. It's not going to work. But try. You want to be weird? That's fine. I remember one time long ago, I was at the University of, of Minnesota, and I was there for the... They had me there to talk about the craft of writing. That was the name of the talk, like, craft of writing. Give the talk. Woman raises her hand on the balcony. She's like, hey, uh, would you rather have hair for fingernails or fingernails for hair? <laughs> okay, technically not a question about the craft of writing. And I was going to sort of, I guess, uh, kind of playfully make fun of her for like kind of the inanity of this question. But as I was doing so, I kind of realized that if I had hair for fingernails, I'd kind of like be like a limited lazy werewolf. <laughs> but if I had fingernails for hair, I'd be a human rhino. <laughs> So I was like, great question. Okay. Okay, so... Well, we'll get to that later. It's real, it's real deep, obviously, and dark, you know? Very dark response. I actually killed the woman. And uh, just sort of to change the mood. Because, you know, you're in a situation, you want people to be exhilarated, you don't want them to just think, I can come to this and not be murdered. Great question, yeah. Okay, um... Here we go. Thanks again for coming. Okay. I've spent most of my life being wrong. Not about everything. Just about most things. I mean, sometimes I get stuff right. I married the right person. I've never purchased life insurance as an investment. The first time undrafted free agent Tony Romo led a touchdown drive against the Giants on Monday Night Football, I told my roommate, I think this guy will have a decent career. At a New Year's Eve party in 2008, I predicted Michael Jackson would unexpectedly die within the next 12 months, an anecdote I shall casually recount at every New Year's Eve party I'll ever attend for the rest of my life. One thing on this, I mean, hey, Michael Jackson's death, granted, there's a lot of weird news coming out about him today, but like, you know, it's a tragedy. He was a musical genius, really talented. No one would be happy about a man dying. That said, it's pretty fucking amazing I did this. I still can't believe it. I think it's got to be one of the most amazing things I've ever done. That summer then, you know, we were basically, we, I, I was having a New Year's Eve party with my wife, okay? I think we weren't married yet, but we were having a party and we were passing around this notebook, writing down predictions for the coming year. Some people were being funny, some people were being serious. I somehow split the difference and was like, Michael Jackson's going to die and there's going to be issues over his estate. Michael Jackson then dies that summer. I'm on tour. I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We're driving around. Hear it on the radio. Michael Jackson has died, you know? Here again, a man died. Tragedy. Not anything to celebrate. But I emailed a lot of people that day. Like, I just, I don't know how I did it. It's just, you know, nonetheless, okay, these are the exceptions. It is far, far easier for me to categorize the various things I've been wrong about. My insistence that I would never own a cell phone. The time I wagered $100 against $1 that Barack Obama would never become president or even receive the Democratic nomination. My three-week obsession over the looming Y2K crisis prompting me to hide bundles of cash, bottled water, and Oreo cookies throughout my one-bedroom apartment. It's also weird to me as I realize there's a few people at this book reading who just was like, Y2K? What? Was, what? <laughs> Like, it's 16 years. It seems like it happened fucking yesterday to me, but I guess it was a long time ago. If you're 21, you're not supposed to know that. But 
It was a dumb thing. <laughs> At this point, my wrongness doesn't even surprise me. I almost anticipate it. Whenever people tell me I'm wrong about something, I might disagree with them in conversation, but in my mind, I assume their accusation is justified, even when I'm relatively certain they're wrong, too. Yet these failures are these small potatoes. These micro-moments of wrongness are personal. I assume the answer to something was A, but the true answer was B or C or D. Reasonable parties can disagree on the unknowable, and the passage of time slowly proves one party to be slightly more reasonable than the other. The stakes are low. If I'm wrong about something specific, it's usually my own fault, and someone else is usually, but not totally, correct. But what about the things we're all wrong about? What about ideas that are so accepted and, in and internalized that we're not even in a position to question their failability? These are ideas so ingrained in the collective consciousness that it seems foolhardy to even wonder if they're potentially untrue. Sometimes they seem like questions only a child would ask, since children aren't paralyzed by the pressures of consensus and common sense. It's a dissidence that creates the most unavoidable of intellectual paradoxes. When you ask smart people if they believe there are major ideas currently accepted by the culture at large that will eventually be proven false, they will say, Well, of course, there must be. That phenomenon has been experienced by every generation who's ever lived since the dawn of human history. Yet offer those same people a laundry list of contemporary ideas that might fit that description, and they'll be tempted to reject them all. For example, if we went out on the street out there and somebody walks by, and I'm like, hey there, citizen of Los Angeles, do you think it is possible that in 50 or 100 years, the way we view presidents will have changed, and somebody we currently think is a great president will be seen as a subpar president? Do you believe that we could possibly reshuffle the way we look at presidents? They would be like, oh, of course. That happens all the time. Okay. Then you go like, okay, it's going to be Lincoln. <laughs> then they'll be like, you're an idiot, you know? But this is the thing. In the abstract, this idea of the book is very obvious. Everyone agrees with the idea in the abstract. It's only when you give them specific things that we're wrong about that they feel real uncomfortable. And that's sort of this kind of uh, inherent problem. It is impossible to examine questions we refuse to ask. These are the big potatoes, okay? Um, now, you know, when I was doing this book, I would be interviewing people. So, in many dis different disciplines. There's parts of this book on literature, parts on rock music, parts on sports, parts on politics and television, um, and there's a section on science. And scientists were some of the first people I interviewed because that, I just felt like that was a good starting point, you know? And when I'd go and interview a scientist, I would always kind of do this. I'd be like, hey man, because I'm cool, of course, I'd be like, hey man, scientist, uh, I'm not trying to contradict your view of reality because your view of reality is probably my view of reality as well. I'm just curious, what do you think is the possibility that these kind of foundational truths that we're building science on could be wrong or flawed? And because I didn't want the person to think I was like denying climate change or like an anti-vaccination person or something, I'd always try to be safe. And I'd be like, hey, look, man, I know some things. I say man again, of course, because I'm super cool. I was like, hey, man, I know some things are off the table, like, I mean, gravity. And I was interviewing Brian Greene, who's this like kind of superstar guy, the you know, string theory guy at Columbia. He was like on an episode of the Big Bang Theory. I guess it's as famous as you can be as a physicist. But. <laughs> so I say this to him, and he's like, uh, that's not true. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, I think our vision of gravity in 500 years will probably be totally different than the way it is now. So I thought to myself, this book could work. <laughs> if the example I'm using as the unchangeable thing is 
totally changeable, like everything is sort of on the table. Because here's the deal with gravity, you know, it's like, okay, our understanding of gravity is basically roughly 400 years old, 350 years old. It's pretty much Isaac Newton's ideas kind of filtered through Einstein, the idea that gravity is this force that sort of dictates the entire universe. So much so that if you're a physicist and you've got some complicated equation you're working on, and it's brilliant, but it doesn't match up with gravity, you change the equation. Now, this sort of surpassed the previous idea of gravity, which was Aristotle's idea. This was back when science was more interlocked with philosophy as opposed to math. Aristotle's belief on gravity was like, well, you know, the reason a rock doesn't float is because a rock wants to be on the ground. Rocks have agency. They want to be at the center of the universe. Obviously, Earth is the center of the universe. The center of Earth must be the dead center of the universe. So if you drop a rock, it's trying to get to the center of the universe, and the only thing stopping it is the ground. Everyone hears that now, and they're like, well, it's, it's bizarre, you know, weird. You know, but when you think about it, it's the guy just observing the world. He has nothing to base it on. He's just looking at it. And we thought this for about... 2,000 years, okay? That was sort of the unilateral understanding of what gravity was and why it happened for 2,000 years. And this kind of prompted a bunch of other questions that I apply to all the disciplines in this book, not just science. But in the example of gravity, it's kind of phrased like this. If mankind could believe something false was objectively true for 2,000 years, why do we reflexively assume that our current understanding of gravity, which we've embraced for a mere 350 years, will somehow exist forever? Of course, at the same time, is it possible that this type of problem has been solved? What if Newton's answer really is more or less the final answer and the only one we will ever need? Because if that is true, it would mean that we're at the end of a process that has defined the experience of being alive. It would mean certain intellectual quests are no longer necessary. In other words, part of the idea of being a smart person, generally, is to look for things that we don't already know, to break new ground. But if we get to the point where we kind of assume what the ground we've broken is all the ground that's left, kind of changes the meaning of what it means to be an intelligent person. What are you supposed to do when there's nothing else to learn except what other people have learned already? Finally, which statement is more reasonable to make? I believe gravity exists, or I am 99.9% .9 certain that gravity exists. Certainly, the second statement is safer. But if we're going to acknowledge even the slightest possibility of being wrong about gravity, we're pretty much giving up the possibility of being right about anything at all. One of the books I read before I started writing this book was by a woman named Katherine Schultz. Um, at the time, she wasn't that famous. She's kind of famous now. She won a Pulitzer Prize. She wrote a story for The New Yorker that was basically like an earthquake is going to happen in the Pacific Northwest, and it's going to create a tsunami, and it's going to wipe out the whole region, and Seattle and Portland and Olympia and Eugene will just be gone. A depressing story. Granted, earthquake stories, usually depressing, but this one especially so, since it was talking about the death of 13,000 people that seems mathematically certain. Okay. But regardless, before she did this, though, back to the reason I interviewed her is because she had done a book called uh, uh, Being Wrong. Okay? Now, her book is different than mine. Her book is like personal wrongness, uh, mistakes you might make in your job or in a relationship. Why do we make bad decisions or, or why are we wrong about things in our own life? My book is about collective wrongness, kind of these ideas of shared things that we all seem to believe. But nonetheless, one of the things she talks about in this book is the idea of naive realism. And I write about this a little bit in my book as well. Um, she kind of says, okay, uh, 
she says there are like no one out there who's pr- promoting the idea of naive realism. But that doesn't mean that naive realists don't exist. Um, I would go a step further. I suspect most conventionally intelligent people are naive realists, and I think it might be the defining intellectual quality of this era. Now, the straightforward definition of naive realism doesn't seem that outlandish. It's a theory that suggests the world is exactly as it appears. Okay, that's the idea of naive realism. How the world looks is how the world is. You want to find a naive realist? Find a two-year-old kid. Okay, you put a baseball on the floor, ask the kid, where's the baseball? They'll be like, baseball. You put a bucket on the baseball and say, where's the baseball? And they'll be like, baseball? Like a, a kid almost views the world in a two-dimensional way. That like, if they can't see something, it's not there. You have to be three or four or sometimes even five before a kid can be like, I can understand that things exist that aren't there. Okay. Uh, so it's, now if you go by the literal definition, it's pretty easy to understand why this would create wrongness. You know, it's like, oh, the sun moves across the sky, I guess the sun is orbiting the earth or whatever. But my definition, the one that I use for naive realism, uh, my kind of way I personally categorize it, uh, is wider and more insidious. Because I think it operates as the manifestation of two ingrained beliefs. And I feel like these two ingrained beliefs are particularly present in the minds of intelligent people. Okay? I feel like they hold these two ideas simultaneously. One is... When considering any question, I must be rational and logical to the point of dismissing any unverifiable data as preposterous. In other words, they're like, I don't care about subjective ideas. I don't care what your opinion is or how you feel. I'm just going by the data. I'm an empirical person. For me to understand something, it's based only on factual material. But at the same time, they also happen to hold this thought. When considering any question, I'm going to assume that the information we currently have is all the information that will ever be available. So it's like we're only being logical, but we're assuming that we're done finding out the material that allows us to be analytical. Here's an extreme example, okay? The possibility of life after death. When considered rationally, there is no justification for believing that anything happens to anyone upon the moment of his or her death. There is no reasonable counter to the prospect of nothingness. Any anecdotal story about like floating toward a white light or like when Shirley MacLaine would say, you know, she lived on Atlantis or there's the book about like the little boy who goes into a coma and he comes out of the coma and he's like, Jesus is great or whatever, you know. It's like (laughs) these things are always sort of just dismissed, justifiably sort of by the secular intellectual community. Okay? We just, they just don't seem like they're, they're worth putting into the equation. Yet this wholly logical position discounts the overwhelming likelihood that we currently don't know something critical about the experience of life, much less the conclusion to that experience. There are so many things we don't know about energy, or the way energy is transferred, or why energy, which can't be created or destroyed, exists at all. We can't truly conceive of the conditions of a multidimensional reality, even though we're probably already living inside a multidimensional reality. We have a limited understanding of consciousness. We have a limited understanding of time, and the perception of time, and the possibility that all time is happening at once. So while it seems unrealistic to seriously consider the prospect of life after death, it seems equally naive to assume that our contemporary understanding of this phenomenon is remotely complete. We have no idea what we don't know, or what we'll eventually learn, or what might be true despite our perpetual inability to comprehend what that truth is. 
It's impossible to understand the world of today until today has become tomorrow. Now, this is no brilliant insight, and only a fool would disagree, but it's remarkable how habitually this truth is ignored. We constantly pretend our perception of the present day will not seem ludicrous in retrospect, simply because there doesn't appear to be any other option. Yet there is another option, and the option is this. We must start from the premise that, in all likelihood, we are already wrong. And not wrong in the sense that we are examining questions and coming to incorrect conclusions, because most of our conclusions are reasoned and coherent. The problem is with the questions themselves. So what this book really is, is just... It's multi-topic, and I just kind of work through the possibility that either we're wrong about something we believe in the present tense, possibly, we might be right, but the history of ideas is kind of the history of being wrong, so you get to almost project wrongness upon it, or the way that we sort of look back on the 18th century or the 15th century, we use a different criteria for that than the criteria we use for our day-to-day life. So I try to sort of jump forward and visualize a person 300 years from now looking back on this era, and what criteria will they use to sort of understand this time, because it seems to be that even though we're all living through this time, and we have a first-hand relationship to what happening, our belief of this period will not become the historical belief. Later people will come back and interpret this time, and that will be what it meant to be alive at this time. Um, so there's a section on like what's the possibility that the greatest author living right now is either someone totally unknown like Franz Kafka was or weirder still known but not taken seriously by anyone maybe not even themselves um, I talk about the idea of rock music sort of receding from the culture and becoming an academic pursuit so in some distant future an academic is looking back at rock music and in all likelihood using one individual to sort of understand the entire system who would that individual will be. Um, there's something about the future of football. There's something about the idea of television being a dead medium in the future and people going back and looking at television like archaeologists instead of people looking for entertainment. Um, there's something about politics and, and is it possible that the things that we view as strengths sort of to the American society are actually weaknesses long term. And then at the end of the book there's a section on the possibility that we are right about these things. And what will that mean if we are, in fact, right about our sense of reality, and this is it. Like, we're at the apex, basically, of knowledge, and now we have to figure out what do we do now if we're still curious. Okay. Um, so that's the book. That sounds good. Buy it. If it doesn't sound good, maybe buy it anyways. Okay. Uh, and I will start taking questions now, if there are questions. Um, that guy wins. Uh, what was the interview process like for becoming the ethicist? Ethicist, yes. Okay, a lot of pronunciation in the job. No, I should say that. Uh, that, was, that, was that was a real, I'm sorry, that was a very obnoxious thing for me to make a joke about. I don't know why I did it. I was like, you know, it's a good question. What was the interview process like? You know what? There wasn't one. I wrote a letter to them and I said, like, hey, I want this job. And the guy was like, really? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, hmm, that's interesting. And then they sent me, I guess this is like an interview. They sent me a, like 10 potential questions. And they were like, how would you answer them? So I answered them. And uh, the guy was like, I want to hire you. He's like, however, this is like a weird thing, seemingly unethical too. They're like, we have to open this job up though. We need to have a kind of a more diverse pool of candidates. So we're going to pretend like this job is open for three months. 
And they even had a bunch of people do like one column, like Cheryl Strand did one, and somebody else. Like they, you know, uh, and I, I assume these people were under the impression they were trying out for the job, but I already had the job. But I couldn't tell anyone because I was the ethicist, which is unethical of me because I was lying. Okay. <laughs> so that's what it was. And then I just got the job. And you know, I, I tell you what, I, I love that job, but uh, it bummed me out. I thought I'd be great at it, and I was only okay. And it was real stressful because, kind of like the thing I said about podcasting, the risk reward did not seem in balance. I always thought, like, you know, especially in this age of identity politics, and I was consciously picking questions where there was a real possibility that you could make an argument on either side. Like, if, what was weird about the readership is that they seemed to like when the question would be like, hey, I'm wondering, can I steal from my daughter? And I would be like, no. And then people would be like, you're a terrible person. And people would be like, yes. Like, their readership for that column is real self-righteous. They just wanted me to pick obvious things and yell at people. But I didn't want to do that. I, like, I wanted to pick questions where you could make an argument on either side. So as a consequence, I was always like... This is just, I was just so nervous, and the more I'd think about these things, the worse it would get. I mean, if you just asked my wife about this, she'd be like, this was a terrible thing for me, because there'd be three days in every week when I would have turned the column in and then wish I could bring it back, and it always seemed like the downside was, I'm going to end my career this week, and the upside is people going like, oh, it was okay, all right, it was okay this week. <laughs> like, that seemed to be what they were, okay, back there, redhead dude. Oh, well, that, I mean, I, I'm not surprised by that because you know we get these questions in. Sometimes it would be, it would be months before we would use them. Yeah. And um, <laughs> yeah. and 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 I'll tell you, I can explain why. Okay, it was still, you know, it's still in the physical magazine. So there was a certain size it had to be. Okay. So what would happen is, let's say one week I had 800 words of space. I had to find a question and a response that fit that space. Now, I had been a rock critic before, right? So when I was a rock critic, it was like, oh, I'm reviewing a Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's record. I'm a little short. I'll make a joke about the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's. Or I went long. I'll just take a joke out, you know? But if somebody's writing me about their grandma with Alzheimer's, it's like I can't be like, I'm going to fluff this out. <laughs> So I had to find questions that exactly fit that space, okay? And if it didn't fit exactly, I had to use something else. And I also, there was like, they were always wanted like there to be a mix. Like they wanted, if there was one serious question, they kind of liked a goofy question, too, you know? So, I mean, I guess, I mean, the person who, did you end up being answered by the three-person ethicist? Yeah, that's because after I left, because the new, basically a new guy came in and took over. When you take over a magazine, one of the things you get to do is like kind of reinvent it the way you want to do it. So I met with a guy. <clears throat> he's a good guy. And he was just like, I think we might move this into a different direction. We want it to be closer to podcasting because they they're, podcasting is what people are into now. And I was like, hey, man, great. Like, you don't, there's not, it's not going to be, I'm not going to fight you on this. Like, if you think this is done, I'm happy it's done. And I, I got to say, I'm relieved that it is done, even though I miss thinking about the questions. Yeah. Well, that's very nice of you to say. That's nice. Okay. Okay. Uh, first of all, I want to say I relate to your Tony Romo anecdote because around 1989, 1990, I was confident he declared everyone I knew that Troy Aikman would never win a Super Bowl. Mm. Right? The way I was right, because he won three. But, um, <laughs> the question is, I guess the, one of the things that follows from the, the thesis of the book is that there, while there's wid
at the risk of, you know, while this is being recorded, of, you know, putting yourself on the side of something that seems like an extreme outlier opinion, is there anything, out, anyone out there today who is questioning something that seems, you know, cert, you know, whether it's 9-11 was an inside job or uh, whatever, that you think down the road could be, you know, today's Galileo questioning the that's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting and consciously dangerous question because you're like, hey, would you, uh, just just, just to be cool, would you like maybe say 9-11 might not happen? You know, just like, I mean, we're just, we're just at a bookstore. Just go ahead. You know? um, but I mean, the, the obvious answer is... For the record, I'm not... Uh, yeah, uh, so, yeah, well, okay, you're on the record. Good for you, okay. It's like, uh, 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 you know, but the real answer is, Yes. I mean, I do think that these things are, like, this book is, like, not, people always want me to make predictions. This book is not a book of predictions. It's actually the opposite, okay? It's the, you know, when you write about futurism in any way, and I suppose I am writing about futurism in this book, they want you to predict things, and that's not what I'm doing. What I'm just saying is that there's a degree of certitude in our society that I find very problematic, and I think that what has happened is, Particularly with the rise of the internet and the democracy, like we democratize voices and there's more voices out there, it's harder to get attention in the attention economy. And the way to get attention now seems to be to be both bombastic and incredibly secure in your opinion, almost to suggest that you're intelligent because how could anyone disagree with me? Like it's so clear, you know? And I think that while that's not necessarily dangerous, it is annoying, right? Like we, it, the world doesn't have to be that way. I mean, if people have the wrong idea about things, it's not like, you know, you, if you think that 9-11 didn't happen, that's not really a... Well, I guess it would be weird if you thought it didn't happen. <laughs> but, like, you know... But, like, let's say you thought Canada did it, okay? You think Canada actually did 9-11. Like, is that really a problem? Is something going to happen? No, you're just going to be this isolated person. Um, but there, I don't see why... Um, I don't see why a discussion on anything has to involve at the end it's sort of like, this is what I think, these are my reasoning, you're an idiot if you disagree. I feel like you can just do the first two parts. <laughs> you can just say, this is what I think and this is my reasoning. And like, you know, I'm possibly wrong. I just, to me, it seems like an intelligent person recognizes the possibility of being wrong and somehow it has flopped where the intelligent person seems to be the person who is not, who's just totally confident about the thing that they essentially imagined, you know? These and confused or everybody wants them. These are movies. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, well, which one, I guess you're asking which one is better? Yeah. Or which one's longer? Yeah, okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, Days and Confused is, I think, a better movie um, for a couple reasons. One, I think that while I like them both, um, that everybody wants some. He's asking specifically about two films by Richard Linkletter, and they're kind of interlocked. In fact, there seems to be a time relationship to it, that the kid who was a freshman in Days and Confused would be the age as the main character in this movie. This would be like him going to college or whatever. Um, I just think that because the second one is in so many ways fundamentally based on the emotional aesthetics of the first one, that you have to like the first one more. Now, I've only seen the second film once. I've seen Days of Confused like 40 times. Um, so, you know, sometimes like not even watching it. Like, it's just on the TV. I used to date a girl, and that's what we would do. Just take a, we didn't have to make a decision. We would just watch the movie again and kind of live in that. 
<laughs> mindset. But it's like, a, so I like that one better. I like the music better in it. You know, I don't know. I guess that's just my opinion, but, you know. Uh, uh. I got two questions. Is there a limit? Mm, the limit's two. No, go ahead. <laughs> All right. First question is, why are so many influential pop icons dying in 2016? Like, what's Chuck's answer? Okay, well, okay. Uh, there's really been three, particularly three big ones. You can say more, but three major ones. Sure. Okay. Um, I suppose, in a broader sense, two major ones. Uh, well, one guy died because he was old. The other guy died... Because he died, you know. Um, I would guess coincidence would be the main answer to this. Uh, the thing is, though, it's like there are just, and this is the thing that people got to just get ready, okay? It's got to get ready for this because right now, you know, there's no monoculture anymore. Everything is split up, and there's people don't have those shared experiences. Like I used to always talk about the Tonight Show, how if you were growing up in the 70s and 80s, and someone talked about watching TV late at night, they were talking about Johnny Carson. They weren't talking about other things. Like it was just known that there was an episode of of uh, Alice where all the characters, you probably don't know if anyone remembers Alice, it was a show about like these people who worked in a diner with a cook, and it was on CBS, but there's an episode where they talk about watching The Tonight Show, which was on NBC. Like, it's hard to imagine this, right? It was a show on CBS was like, the only show people would watch is on NBC. Okay, but that's gone, right? So now, but people crave that. They crave this idea of having connections with people that they don't know. And the only way that can happen now, really, is like, sometimes through sports, sometimes through trash, Tragedies, mostly through deaths, okay? And, like, you can just kind of emote in social media. You know, like, if five years ago, if you just went on social media and talked about how you loved Prince, somebody would be like, ah, Prince was okay. But not now, he's dead. So it's like, yes, I understand you. Okay. But what's going to happen, though, is a lot of deaths are going to occur because there are so many more famous people now than there used to be. I mean, in the 70s, the people who were dying were people from the 40s and 50s. There were just not as many famous people. We have so many famous people from the 70s, 80s, and 90s that there's going to be a celebrity dying constantly now. And I'm curious to see if we will there be a period where we'll kind of get just used to it. I kind of thought Bowie was the apex because the outpouring... I mean, I love David Bowie. I mean, you know, but I just I did not anticipate that there would be such an outpouring. I understand why now. But then when Prince died, it kind of happened again. Interestingly enough, when Muhammad Ali died, it was less than Prince. In a way, it seemed like Muhammad Ali had been dead for 10 years in some ways. That was part of it, too. But I just, I was curious about why that was. I guess it was because people who loved Muhammad Ali as teenagers aren't on the internet, but anyways, what's your second question? Okay, so this one's probably a weird one. I it relates to the book, though. Okay. You know? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, your hype man's helping you out here. <laughs> we both saw you speak in 2007-2008 in St. Louis. Okay. And somebody in the crowd asked you, is Kiss ever going to get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And you said, no, it's never going to happen. And then a couple years, they did. It did. And when I read that, all I kept thinking was, Chuck was wrong. Amazing. What did Chuck think when that happened? I I have to know. Well, okay. You know, in 2007, it looked as though that the, the criteria they were using for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was going to be stable. You know, the day's failure. But two significant things happened. Well, I mean, you could say three. You could say that over time, anybody from sort of the classic rock era has been elevated a bit. 
that KISS is taken more seriously now than they were 10 years ago and certainly more than 20 years ago. But the two bigger things is this. One is that now anybody who's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame who's been inducted gets to vote. So other musicians do not view KISS the way rock critics do. They often see KISS as something like, you know, in a weird way, even if they don't respect them musically, they might look at them as almost aspirational in the way that they've sort of commodified this and, and, and they've met them as people. And that was, so they so they vote, they're like, KISS is obviously important to them. The other is that now the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony is held in places like the Barclay Center, where they need a lot of, there's a lot of seats. So you've got to put a band like KISS or Rush or Deep Purple, these bands that have an authentic following, where even the people who might seem, you know, like like more canonically meaningful, you know, who might have just this tiny audience, like they need to fill these buildings. So I think that that is part of it. I think that they have decided that if the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a commercial enterprise, we need to uh, amplify how much credit we give to commercial success. So that's why. Hey, sorry I was wrong about this. I just, it's interesting that all the years later you were like, that's what you remembered. You were like, yeah. Well, I'm good. I mean, glad. I'm glad. That makes me feel good that you remembered it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, is there a chance, I, I did some research a couple years ago and found out that Killing Yourself Alive was in development, possibly to be made into a movie. Could that happen still? There's a guy working on it, a guy from Austin. Um, it's interesting. He's like, he was the guy who like started who he took over Austin City Limits and Lollapalooza. So he's like a concert guy. So he's like, I'm not working with people in Hollywood. I'm going to do it on my own. I was like, okay. I mean, I, this seems like a weird thing to do. I mean, it seems like I'm, I'm going to make a movie without involving the movie industry, but maybe he will. Um, there's a guy in the audience tonight. He's trying to make a movie out of Visible Man. There's somebody trying to make a movie out of Downtown Owl. I would love it if this happened, but every other time we try, it hasn't worked. So I'm I'm never optimistic, but I'm always hopeful. I heard you say it was your favorite of your books. Did I mishear that? Kill, no, that's my Killing Yourself Lives. My it's my favorite of books, but I'll never write another book like that. I mean, that was just too there's too personal. Like, and I just I wouldn't do that. Like, I, looking back, I can't even believe that I did that, wrote that. But I'm glad I did because it actually oh my <laughs> makes me very angry. Uh, no, it, uh, it makes me uh, just remember that period of my life. Okay. What's my favorite? Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so many questions to ask. I don't even know how to choose them. I don't know what what what, what should be my priority. How many questions you have? I'll give you a number. Pick whatever the second one you thought of. Why don't you ask me a question? <laughs> um, why are you here? I mean, I'm not being a jerk. I'm like, oh, why are you here? Yeah. No, that's exactly what I want you to ask. Uh, I'm Playing into your hands. Yeah, this is not going in a good direction. Next time, no, okay. It's uh, yeah, so, 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 uh, okay. Uh, would you rather Would you rather live in a world without booze or a world without sandwiches? I'd rather live in a world without sandwiches. Are you fucking nuts? What? A sandwich is bread and meat. They're still going to exist separately. I don't have to put them together. Do you know how much money I'd have to spend on drugs if booze didn't exist? I wonder if you have any thoughts on the Fermi paradox, you know, that says they're, the universe is so old and there ought to have been evidence of aliens by now, but most of the answers to the Fermi paradox assume that aliens a million years advanced from us would be kind of like us. I wonder if you have any 
Well, you know, there there isn't a section in this book on aliens, and some people have you know asked like, you know, why don't you address aliens, man? You know, it's like it's like, well, you know, two things. This is really a book about questions that I feel aren't even being asked at all, and it's like. We're asking if there's aliens. Like, that's coming up. Like, you know. Um, in terms of that, like, yeah, I mean, the, the Fermi paradox, it's, in some ways, is almost like the bootstrap paradox with time travel. Like, there's just this idea that if this thing is possible, there must be some evidence of it now. I recently saw, like, a real brilliant thing that someone did about time travel. They held a party for people for people who've come from the future, but they didn't announce it until the party had passed. So they're like, so that if there are actually time travelers, they would know to go back. Um, in terms of the aliens, like, uh, I, math suggests aliens exist, and math also suggests we'll never meet them. So those are the most reasonable answers, but of course we don't live in a reasonable world, so. Uh, what's the worst thing you've ever done? <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's the worst thing that, I ever, that I've ever done? I guess it would probably be... Um, yeah, well, I say I would say lying to someone when I was conscious that they would believe me. Like I knew that they. I mean, that's something I guess could happen more than once. But it's like, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, but I didn't apply for the job under the argument I do no unethical acts. Like that, yeah. Do you have any uh, involvement with the Bill Simmons new website or TV shows? Um, kind of. He's asking me about the Simmons thing. I mean, I, I, I think I'm going to be involved. Uh, but I they taped the first episode today and. I don't know anything about it. The fact that it happened is all. Um, I, I'm curious as anybody else, in a way. I mean, it just seems like an interesting new thing. The website that's sort of like the new Grantland, I know a lot of the people there. I know I'm not supposed to call it the new Grantland, but that's sort of, you know, it's like a lot of the people are from Grantland. Um, I, like, I don't think I'm probably going to write for it that much, though, because they're kind of going in a direction that's a little different than the writing that I do. I'm not in a bad way, just different. Like, it's just not really what I'm doing now. So I probably will be involved, but not heavily involved. <laughs> do you think the NBA is fixed? Do I think the NBA is fixed? I think a little, little bit. Like, I don't think the outcome of any game is set. But I think that pro sports are kind of entertainment. So if, if you're involved with an organization that is built around, fundamentally, people being entertained, you're going to want to do things that will promote that possibility. Um, so, like the Dream on Green thing, for example... Do I think he deserved a suspension? Sure. I think you can make a very valid argument that he deserved to be suspended in Game 5. Um, would I have suspended him? Probably not. But if I can make a justifiable argument that he can be suspended and the idea of his suspension will it continue the series, is that a fix? I mean, maybe I would say this. I think the NBA is not necessarily fair. That's not the same as fixing it, but I do think that and, and, and I don't even know 
if that's really a problem? Because the question becomes, it's like, why are we watching sports? Okay, Is it because we want to see the fairest possible game? I don't think that is the answer. Um, you know, I, I, I remember that, you know, like when... Greg Popovich, the coach of the Spurs, was being criticized for like holding guys out of games, good players, on nationally televised games, you know. And the argument was sort of like, well, he should do that because his job is to coach, his priority is to coach and win championships. He has to do what's best for that. Um, And I guess that is his specific job, but if you're the commissioner of the NBA, you're like, well, you're missing the point of this. Like, these games are exhibitions. Even the even the Super Bowl is an exhibition. No one's getting killed at these things. Like like they've made up things. We've constructed these rules, and we have these guys play. So if like you're not playing these guys that people want to see and are paying money to and making us all very rich, it's like you're missing the point of this. Like this is closer to a play than it is to a real war. You know. Oh. Okay. Uh, do I have any parenting advice? Well, this is interesting about being a parent. See, like before you have any kids, you can't have any advice. You don't know anything. And as soon as you have one kid, you're an expert. <laughs> That's the whole thing. Uh, do you have kids? What would you like to know about? I see your kid's older than my kid, older kids. So it's like, actually, I got to ask you for advice. Um, I just, you know. Uh, it's uh, I, I feel like I have now advice for somebody who's just going to have a kid. Like I could say, like these are your, the one thing I would say to anybody out here who's going to have a kid. Uh, you're going to go through this process before the kid comes, where they're going to teach you all this stuff about the birth, about the actual birth, the hospital, all these little details, all these things going on. They don't tell you anything about the first month you have the baby, and it makes no sense at all. Because the thing is, the baby, in a weird way, just kind of comes. It just kind of comes out, and if it doesn't, there is a doctor there who will take it out. But then you get the baby home, and it's just you, you know? Is that... I really enjoyed the book a lot, and uh, one of the few predictions you sort of made, which I agree with, is about rock and roll and its inevitability. Mm-hmm. And uh, I posted an excerpt on social media, and the response not only completely missed the point, there seemed to be almost a violent reaction to the inevitability of cultural entropy. Yeah. What a surprise that people on Facebook did not critically think of a question and instead responded about what they wanted to talk about anyways. You must have the weirdest friends in the world, man. It's like, what a... Yeah. But it got me thinking because uh, I feel like every time I read a new article, it should start with, well, we now know, because that seems to be the base of a lot of scientific. Yeah. Oh, coffee, good, coffee, bad, coffee, good. And, uh, <laughs> you read a lot of coffee stories. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, any more? You got any information on toast? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, it got me thinking, though, that if everyone in the world read this, took it really, really seriously, and really, really dug in and, and questioned everything, the, the, the thing would just kind of collapse. That our present looking and, and not really wanting to dive into all this keeps the whole thing going. 
in a certain sense. And, and yeah, no, that's not a crazy idea. Although the thing, I mean, what you're sort of you're describing a very fantastical scenario. One, everyone reading this book. Two, everyone thinking it's brilliant. And then three, being I'm going to live this way now. The thing is about this book, I sort of have the luxury of being able to sit in my apartment and think about this for seven hours a day. You know, it's like, what would it be like if someone 500 from years from now thought about this? It's like, like the average person doesn't really have the, in the position to do that, so they can do it for 288 pages in this book. Whatever long it takes you to read it, four hours if you're a fast reader or whatever, you can have that experience. I do not want to persuade people to be like me. I have no interest in that. I never had interest in a critic of taste making. That's fucking idiotic to me. It's like, I don't want people to have my taste. I'm just like, the world's interesting. This is how I think about it. I don't really know what I think until I write about it. It's like my thoughts are like a ball of yarn and the writing and the typing and straighting of the yarn. So somebody reads this book and then says like, I'm going to live differently. I don't, I mean... like, I get thanks. I mean, I was like, it's cool, I guess, but I don't, that's not my intention. But I know what you're, the larger question you're saying that if people did not reflexively accept reality as it was, it would be chaos. But you know what? It's already chaos. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take two more questions. Oh. Is that me or just guy? Uh, um, since releasing the book, is there anything after like seeing the reaction and all that? Like, is there anything that you you would want to revisit or edit or add? Like, after you release something like this, or you just well, I mean, okay, the part of that, what I want to, edit, I mean, if I could work on a book in perpetuity, yeah. I would. Like, I would never, I would still be editing my first book. Yeah. Like, I never, I love writing. I hate publishing. I but they're intertwined. I can't write and make a living if I don't publish, right? But I would always change things and adjust things totally, you know? But if you're talking about big things, no. No big things. No big things. Um, I might have left out, there's a small thing on climate change where I'm like, I'm not talking about this because it's going to distract people. And like, it did. I shouldn't have even done that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, Given how the last year has gone politically, do you think there's any changes that you would advocate for for how we protect the president? Oh, okay, well, okay, first of all, if this is a book about, like, how's we going to seem in 300 years, it would be bad if I was, like, the last six months changed my opinion, okay? Uh, but I know what you're saying, okay? Um, the way that we elect presidents is sort of flawed, okay? It's based on something, based on a time when the country was much smaller and the reliability of the voting populace was different, you know? Um, Would it make more sense to just use a popular vote? I can't see anyone arguing how it couldn't make more sense, but this is the way we do it. It's kind of part of America. It's kind of an interesting thing. Like, it's a strange thing. I'm saying, like, it's stupid, and if they broke up the Electoral College, I'd be disappointed. Because, I mean, like, I mean, I keep saying this. It's true. It's like, I'm not a Republican, but I'm fundamentally a conservative person. Like, I like the world. Oh, I don't like things to get crazy. And, you know, I like the way the world is, you know. Um, so I like, I like things to stay as they are, you know. So I even things that are bad. Okay. Yeah. So, you sort of uh, look to the future and predict a couple hundred years out the way that you're training the book. Is there uh, cultural aspects of things that exist now that you sort of maybe think that we forgot from you know, three or five hundred years ago that maybe some of them would hope that we wouldn't forget? You, you reference Moby Dick in the book yeah. as kind of this like cultural book that, you know, uh, escaped out yeah. and became really high regarded. Is there something a piece of art or a person that you value that you would 
Maybe we're forgetting about that. Oh, well, see, I, well, the thing I like Moby Dick is the thing is, Moby Dick is great and its selection is arbitrary. That's kind of what I'm arguing there. It's like, this, it's like the way, the reason that Moby Dick is the defining novel now it happened for all these specific reasons that we kind of reverse engineer an explanation for, but actually it was chance, but that doesn't negate from its greatness. Are there things, you know, I mean, we talk about things being lost to history. In the past, that was a literal term. It was like there was, you know, there were musicians from the early 20th century who never got recorded, and then they just died. Like that music is lost now. If something's culturally lost, I mean, we we consciously decided to lose it. Like we made a collective decision that there's not going to be sort of this universal interest in this going forward. Um, so, are there things that I personally wish? No, no. Because the thing is, here you go. If if I think that it wasn't lost, right? Like, my memory of it proves. I don't need other people to know what I know. Uh, one last question. This guy, since he was waited patiently. I was going to ask, out of everything you've written, knowing that your kids will read it, mm-hmm. what do you regret the most? Uh, well, you know, um, it's interesting. My kid, my oldest kid's now two and a half. So when can I assume he reads this? If he's interested in it when he's 16, that's 14 years, 13 years from now. Maybe he will. I mean, I guess in a way it would. I feel good that he'd be interested in this. I don't know if as a teenager, if I'd heard my dad wrote a book, I'm not even sure I'd have read it in high school. Look, I would have read it now, but I don't know if I'd have read it then. I, I, I don't know. If, you know, I guess, I guess I don't. No, I guess I don't. I'm trying to think of something. Like I'm trying to think. Like, are there things in my book that uh, that I would never say to my kid? And I don't. I would like to think that that's not the case. I mean, if my kid asked me about partying and stuff, I'm going to tell him the truth. That that's that. Yeah, like you know, I I don't. Uh, a lot of things that I know you're supposed to reflexively say are bad. I have to say on balance have been good experiences. And is it possible also the things that were bad that are just bad, perhaps by reading this book, he doesn't have to do them and she doesn't have to do them. So, I, you know, uh, I mean, I regret in some ways many, many things I write, but not because of my kids, because of me. <laughs> um, anyways, that's the end. I really appreciate everyone who came out. It's always flattering to me. Sorry I dismissed your question. I just thought we had to get moving. And I, uh, I just, I'll sign the books and thanks very much for coming. Yeah. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by and we hope to see you soon.